what do you give to the person who has given you everything? And um, now, fellas, I just gave you a great uh, excuse for why you didn't get your wife a gift, okay? So jot that one down, and when your wife's like, you didn't get me anything for our anniversary, and you're like, oh, it's our anniversary, don't say that. You just say, baby, what can I give to the person who's given me everything? But I'm serious about that. I'm genuine, genuinely honest about that. Uh, what, what do you give to the person who's given you everything? My life, before I met my wife, was headed toward a really weird place. Uh, I wouldn't be here. I for sure wouldn't be here. Um, I wouldn't be in North Carolina. I probably wouldn't be a Christian uh, had I not met my wife. My life drastically changed uh, when me and her. So when I say everything, I genuinely mean everything. So the question for us this morning is the same. What do we give to the person who has given us everything, who has changed everything about our lives? I want to read a passage to you. Um, it's going to be on the screen, and it's in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, it's Paul talking about marriage, but then at the end, he kind of flips the script on us. So maybe you'll just listen, but if you want to follow quickly on your phone, you can. Uh, we're going to hang out in John 19 for the majority of the sermon. But listen, this sermon's not about marriage, but I can't not talk about marriage, it seems like every week. Uh, I'm not sorry. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit, to your submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the Lord submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Wives or husbands, before you get all happy and pointing to your wife to shut up verse, in a minute, what we're really going to see is that the husbands do more submitting and serving than the wives do. This verse, the word submit, has this really awful context in our culture. But in first century, the word is like a really strong respect. Uh, a really strong uh, desire to honor. And so, use that as you read th those verses. As we keep going, though, Paul tells us, um, in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Maybe the only reason you're here this morning is so you could, husbands, so you could hear that verse. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then Paul tells us exactly what that looks like. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves, him, uh, who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, if you're not loving your wife that way, you're just not cutting it. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, Paul is quoting uh, um, uh, uh, the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis um, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul drops this bomb on us. We think he's talking about this husband and wife relationship, but what, what, is, Paul, what is Paul really talking about? He says, uh, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect her husband. I, 
I, I am not allowed to do this. I'm not allowed to, I have no reason to be able to tell, like diagnose things. Uh, but Paul definitely had to have ADD. Just in all his writings, he like jumps here, 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 and there. So it's like submit to each other. Wives, he starts talking, you know, honor your husbands. And, and, and husbands, you should love your wife as Christ loved the church. Oh, you know what? Actually, I think I'm talking about Christ loving the church. And how does he love the, the church? He gave up everything for the church. Yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. And so in that relationship, we as a church are the bride, and Christ is the husband who made us radiant and without blemish and holy in his sight. Husbands ought to love their wives that way, and wives ought to honor their husbands the way that Christ, or the way that the church should honor Christ. And so, church, let me ask you, how do we honor what do we give to the one who has given us everything? And that's the question we're going to ask throughout the sermon this morning. So if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find John chapter 19. Uh, you can find it on the screens, but y'all, you cannot grow in your relationship with Christ outside of his word. Okay? Uh, you cannot drift, casually drift into a relationship with Christ. You've got to pursue it. And so you can't take these screens home to read God's Word. You need something, the tablet, your phone, or the Bible. So we have volunteers this service to pass out Bibles. Yeah, we do. So if you need a Bible that looks like mine, we'd love for you to have one. Uh, we'd love for you to take it home with you uh, it, to be your Bible. And we're going to be on page 510 in this Bible, uh, which is John chapter 19. Uh, John 19. And I am there. Let me set the scene for where we are in John chapter 19. Just so you know, we're going to be jumping right into it. Uh, let, let's set the scene. It's Passover week. It's the like highlight of the week for the Jewish or of the year for the Jewish person. Jews from everywhere are headed to Jerusalem to make their holy pilgrimage to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and it just so happens that at this, at this very same time, Jesus is now on trial. But let's not get things twisted here. Everyone knows who Jesus is. They're, they're very familiar with him. Whether you're from Judea, where Jerusalem is, or Galilee, and you had to make the pilgrimage. Jesus has made his way all over uh, Palestine. He has done miracles. He has done teachings. Rumors about him has spread as he goes head-to-head -head with the Pharisees. I mean, people are familiar with him, and, and if for nothing else, they're at least familiar with his name and really the drama that surrounds it. Jesus was and still is the most polarizing figure in all of history. Except for now, which we're in this really, like, nebulous time about people being lazy about what they believe and they just don't care. All other eras before the one we're in, Jesus was polarizing. It was one side or the other. There really wasn't much in between it. And how can you be in between about Jesus? How can you be in between about if you love him or not? How can you be in between about living for Christ or not. And I want to confess something to you. Being a pastor of the church, I told you just a couple weeks ago that I love the church. I love the church for all of the 
I, I love the church for all that she is. And there are a lot of negatives that go along with her. There are a lot of great things about the church, okay, and those things I love. But there are also some negative effects to the church. And I think one of them is this exact thing I'm talking about. We have a lot of people who show up who say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, but when we leave, we're kind of indifferent about how we're living. And so the question that we're not answering the question of, what do we give to the person who's given us everything? We're just leaving it unanswered. Where we are when we get to John 19 is that Jesus is still in custody. And he's still, ha uh, he, and, and he's still having this inner... The, Jesus is still in custody, and everyone is having this fight amongst, themse amongst themselves about what to do with him. So John chapter 19, verse 1 through 3, and we're going to talk through this passage pretty quickly. Then Pilate, he took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying... Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. A couple weeks ago, I got to go speak at a week of camp um, of middle school students. And one of the goals of the week of camp <clears throat> amongst the volunteers and the staff, the dean asked the staff and the speakers and everyone to um, have us show an example of what an adult looks like who is a Christ follower. Okay, so like when you're a kid, it, everything is just right in front of you. But if you can see someone who's living it out, maybe even say, I want to be like them. I want to follow Jesus like them. <clears throat> and so each night, uh, I was the speaker, okay, of that week. And so each night I started out by, telling, by saying this. Have you heard of Jesus? And, uh, you know, all the kids are like, yeah, I've heard of Jesus. And, and I would pause and just say, guys, I am so in love with Jesus. Now, if you've ever been in love with someone, or maybe, hopefully, or maybe, possibly, currently in love with someone, you know what it's like to ebb and flow in your relationship. Now, the love is current, is the, the love carries through, but how you feel and, and your expressions kind of ebb and flow. <clears throat> in, in my current, Roger, right now, current relationship with Jesus, I've realized that I am not in a sprint after Jesus. And anything other than a sprint after Jesus is a sin. It's just pretending. And I realize that I'm in a jog toward Jesus, not a sprint. Now, I'm not very fast anyway, but no one likes to jog. Okay, if, you, you know, if you're out jogging, it's like, man, I just want to go home and eat cheddar and sour cream potato chips. I don't want to be doing this. And I found myself in a jog toward Jesus, but what I really desire is to be in a sprint toward Jesus. Like, I want to just be like head down, running, full sprint. It'd probably be ugly to watch me sprint, but I don't care because I want to be so like in love with Jesus that I'm after him, and I don't care what anyone else is saying or looking or saying or seeing or, or anything else. Because a jog is just lazy when a sprint is required. Where are, you, where are you in your pursuit of Jesus? Some of us are jogging and really just need someone to come alongside and say, let's sprint, come on, run with me. 
Some of us are walking a little hesitantly. Some of us are standing still. Some of us are actively backpedaling. I'm trying to get out of this thing. I didn't want to be in it to begin with. I say all that to say this. I am in a sprint for Jesus. Our staff, we had this killer staff meeting on Monday. We are in a sprint after Jesus. And when you are in love with someone, to read the verses that we just read should make you tighten up your fists, flare your nostrils, get white-knuckled angry about what just happened to your Jesus. That's not just a Jesus, that is your Jesus. And we can get angry about the Seahawks losing, or we can get angry about the schedule that comes out for Clemson that is way too tough at the front half of the season. What were they thinking? We're the national champions. Like, we can get angry about a whole ton of stuff, but when are we just going to get indignant, angry about what happened to Jesus? For the church, this story is just another page in the children's book that we read to our kids at night. But my king was beaten, not just killed. He was beaten and spit on in a hood over his face. Thousands of people standing around trying to get a glimpse of a spectacle. They're pushing, prodding their way around. I just want to get to the front. As they watch Roman guards, each holding a whip, that they call a cat of nine tails, on the end of it are bones and glass that are shoved into and, and secured to a piece of leather. And they would whip Jesus one after another, laughing as they did and making a spectacle of what is happening. I don't know if you've seen the Passion of the Christ where a piece of it gets stuck in Jesus' back and they don't go up and gently remove it, they rip it out. Sometimes you would see tendons or even the bones in whoever was being whipped in their back. The Roman guards would, would circle around, each taking, their own uh, each taking their own turn. They would punch him. They would kick him. They would add insults, literal insults to his injuries. The crowd would, would spit, and all while watching this happen. Most men... Most men of decent uh, shape, right, like being in shape, would not make it past the flogging to make it to the crucifixion. Now, I don't know if you can get the image. Maybe you've seen the Passion of the Christ, and, and you, you get, at least have that image, but even still, that's an actor, right? You just sit back and think about Pilate. In a few, in a few verses later, we're going to see that Pilate doesn't even think Jesus is guilty of anything. So, so what's he doing? Like, why are you putting Jesus through this? Well, there's probably maybe two reasons. The first is that maybe in hopes that Jesus would die during the actual beating. And that this innocent man wouldn't last to the cross. Or maybe the second reason is that if, if he puts him through this flogging, that perhaps the punishment of this would would satisfy the bloodthirsty Jews who just want Jesus to die. But let's keep reading to see what happens. Hey, if you've read this story before, if you've heard it before, if you've been a Christian all your life, or maybe this is your first Sunday, let's try to read this as if we haven't heard it before. Verse 4. 
once more, Pilate, he came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis or charge against him. He lets them know this after the flogging. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, to them, here is the man. As soon as the, chief cre- uh, as soon as, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis or charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, you have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate asked. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty even of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king, uh, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. In the defense of Pilate, it seems that he's, he's starting to recognize a little bit about who Jesus is. I don't think he completely understands the totality of what's happening. I, I'm sure he doesn't really even understand that Jesus is divinely God, but he is recognizing that there's something special about Jesus, right? Now, like He brings him out, and he's like, he's innocent, but the, again, the Jews just need this guy to die. In his actions, I mean, even Pilate is defensive of Jesus. He can't find any fault in him. Jesus is innocent in the eyes of Pilate. But the Jews, when they realize that, they appeal to the legal side of Pilate, the political side of Pilate. They get to the side of Pilate that has gotten him to where he is in his career. They appeal to the rigorous side of Pilate, the letter of the law side of Pilate, the self-consuming, I'm the man side of Pilate. And although Pilate is finding no fault in Jesus, he has great fear of Caesar. Even though, he, uh, even though Pilate is finding no fault in Jesus, the Jews... They say there is this law, and according to the law, Jesus has to die. But not just death. They cry for Jesus to be crucified. It's the worst death anyone can imagine, and the Romans have perfected it. Now, just give me a second here. You may have heard this, but just to feel it and experience it. When you get home later, and everyone else is taking a nap, uh, just stand in the middle of the living room, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever, however long you can, or in the bathroom where no one can see you or whatever, and just hold your arms above your head outstretched. Now, here's the rules. You cannot bend them in, right? You, and they've got to be above your head. And then cross your legs just like this and leave them be. Now, you have not been beaten 
you have not been hurt in any way. Hopefully, by the time you get home, just don't make your wife mad, and you'll be all right. When you get home, uh, hold them up, and, and then just, you know, maybe try to talk or sing a song or something silly like that. But just to catch a little breath, like, a little bit out of breath. It starts to get hard to breathe. It's hard right now to talk in front of you, even after a minute. I don't even know if it's been that long. The idea of dying on the cross is that you die of asphyxiation. You suffocate on the cross. Eventually, Jesus' lungs will fill up with blood. But even before that, Jesus is out of breath. I'm not kidding. It is hard to, like, continue to talk to you just like this. It's because I'm weak and don't work out, but who's counting? But for Jesus to breathe, it's not natural. He would have to pull up on the nails that are in his wrists. And my shoulders are starting to burn a little bit. And he would have to, but can you imagine Jesus, all his weight is hanging from these nails, right? So his are burning a little bit more. But now he's got to pull up on his nails and his wrists to breathe, all while suffocating. When his arms can't take it anymore, he pushes up from his feet, which also have a nail in them, just to breathe, just to speak. Jesus is dying in front of these people, the worst kind of death imaginable in the known world. This is not just a death, and it's not just a crucifixion. It is the worst imaginable death that they knew how to punish someone with. Pilate, out of his very own mouth, just said, he's innocent. And they say, give him the worst death that you can imagine. Let's keep reading. Verse 13 and 16. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down, uh, and, and Pilate sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered, and verse 16 says, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them uh, to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge. Of Jesus. Even though you've read this story before, maybe you've been to church on Easter, and you know how the story ends, isn't there a little part of you that just hopes that it ends differently? When I was a kid, uh, my grandfather, he's been a preacher my whole life, and uh, you know, he's the best preacher ever. My man, this is how he preaches. My man, on Saturday night, will open up his Bible. Now, this is the whole, most holy man I know, but he'll open up his Bible on Saturday night and just start writing on a legal pad. And then he'll get up on Sunday and preach like you, like you think he's been working on all week, which he probably has in his head, you know. Uh, but he sits back in his rocking chair on Sunday night, writing his sermon out on his legal pad that not even the Lord could read that handwriting. <laughs> but he gets up and, and he preaches. He's been a preacher my whole entire life. Even now, he's like 76, and he's still preaching. Um, and when I was a kid, uh, he would babysit us um, for a time during the day while my parents were at work, and my grandma was at work, and, uh, and he would, this is not uh, 
uh, optimal babysitting skills, but <laughs> he would put in the VHS tape of the story of Jesus. Okay, I can see where he's going with this. I'm five years old, and I loved every part of this story except for when it got to the crucifixion of Jesus. And even they'll tell you the story that what I would do is I would go crawl behind their red recliner because I didn't want to see it. It was real. For a young five-year-old kid, it was almost like as if it really happened. And I wonder for us, if we were to sit back and look at the story as more than just a videotape or a Mel Gibson uh, movie, but what if you're king, the guy you're here to worship? What if it was real? Like this cry within us, we would look every time for a different ending. Please, God, let there be a different ending. Jesus, last week, um, uh, 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 Kendra preached, and she brought up the passage last week where Jesus even cries for a different ending. It was so real. And watch a movie. You know the ending's coming. You just wish it were different. N.T. Wright, um, Wright writes a book, uh, and it's called Simply Christian. Uh, a lot of people call it Our Generation's Version of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's that good. And in the book, he, he proves, he tries to prove that there is a God of the Bible, and then he uses that to prove that there was a Jesus of Nazareth, and then to prove that because of all that validity that there is a Savior in Jesus. But you can't just start out with the Bible, especially with people who don't believe in it, right? And so he points out at the very beginning of the book, in the first section, it's called, uh, he writes about four echoes of a greater voice that we're all born with that are innate in us. And one of those voices is the voice of justice. We all want justice. And so why is it so hard for us with the story of Jesus to grasp it's because internally we have this cry for justice. In this story, it's an innocent man who dies a criminal's death. Right? He dies in place of Barabbas. Why? For the criminal. And the reason this story is so hard for us to grasp as a, as a, as a culture and as a generation and, and as a church is because there's an innocent man who dies, for, who dies in the place of a criminal for a criminal. An innocent man who dies in the place of the guilty on behalf of the guilty. And it doesn't make sense. Remember the, remember the movie The Green Mile? And uh, uh, John Coffey, who's played by uh, Michael Clark Duncan, big black dude. And the beginning of the movie finds this big black dude holding this little white girl. And it kind of makes it look like he's guilty, right? I mean, that's the whole premise of the movie. So he goes to prison... Um, to, to die a guilty man's death, right? He's on like that. But what you find in this jail cell is this sweet, sweet man, right? He heals Tom Hanks, remember? Remember the little mouse that comes in? Or remember the like mouse that would go all around and it was so-and-so's friend, and then he dies? And uh, um, John Coffey says, just bring me the mouse, bring me the mouse. That was a perfect impression, by the way. He says, just bring me the mouse, and, and they bring it to him, and he, he brings the mouse back to life. You guys remember the story? If you have not seen the Green Mile, what are you doing? When you leave here, go straight to Blockbuster, and you can rent it. 
Oh, I'm sorry, there are passionate feelings about Blockbuster? Good gracious. Y'all need to care about something more than Blockbuster. I have, one, never been booed while preaching, and number two, never been booed about Blockbuster. Okay. Uh, anyway. Um, uh, so he, he heals this mouse, and what you find is a compassionate man who, throughout the course of the movie, you start to believe that he's innocent, right? He heals Tom Hanks' character at some point. Finally, at the last part of the movie, um, John Coffey is headed toward uh, the execution chair. And he looks up at Tom Hanks, and he says to him, Boss, I was just too late, but I tried. And then you watch an innocent man die, even though he doesn't deserve it. And why do we grow angry at the end of that two VHS set? Is because John Coffey, he took the infections of other people onto himself so that they can be healed. And then you realize that he's making himself sick. He's taking on the pain of the infected. An innocent man dying and taking the pain with him. Now let's wrap the story up. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign written in, was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Jump down to verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, the person who wrote this book, when, when he saw that he was standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had, been, had now been finished, and so that the scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a, a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk with with a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. An innocent man dies in the place of the guilty. It was me who should have been on the cross. Can you imagine the pain that it would be for my family to watch me die that kind of death, even though I deserved it? It was, it's you that deserve to be on the cross. And I know a lot of you. A lot of you would say, put me up there. I would rather be up there than my family. But can you imagine the pain that it would cause for your family? to watch you go through this. But you don't. Because an innocent man took that on for you. 
It was an innocent man who died in the place of the guilty. The guilty goes free while the innocent man gets put into a tomb. Uh, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3, and I want you to read this. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe this was your church's mission statement at some point, Uh, the church you grew up in. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I've heard a lot of people use this verse to make other people feel bad about their sin. And maybe you've been the subject of that. What's interesting about the Greek here, the New Testament was written in Greek. What's interesting about the Greek here is the word all, uh, it means everyone. It means what it's written, all of us. And that's important because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if anyone's ever made you feel ridiculous with this verse about your sin, you should. We all should. But so should they because we've all fallen short. But Paul keeps writing. This is, still, this is one whole sentence, right? This is like not fragmented. And all, this is the same all as in verse 23, the same that have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all of them are justified, so set right, uh, justified by what price? Freely. By the grace through the redemption, redeem, you know, you redeem points, redeem rewards, you redeem your money. Uh, By the grace through the redemption, the bought part bought you. And how did it come? It came by Christ Jesus. All right, so we've all fallen, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Well, then how do we get there? Because if all, this is all there is, we're like, it's just pointless, right? It's just useless. Well, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And remember, uh, remember Kendra last night, uh, last week, not but, but and, and, and because of that, we're all justified freely, not at a cost, by the grace uh, through Jesus Christ redeeming us through his crucifixion. It was free. It's without cost to you. But I have a problem with that. And here's the problem is I don't like help. Are you like me? Someone gives you a gift, and immediately you're trying to think, how can I get them back? Now, I don't like it when you help me, and I have nothing to offer you in return. It's how I feel when some of you work on my vehicles. It's like, I, I can't even figure out which wrench to give you, bro. That's kind of a lie, but also kind of true. Um, you know, it's like, I, I've got no help here. And you feel helpless. You feel useless. And so I don't like it. I don't like to feel like I owe you one. I don't like to feel like uh, I can't give, outgive you. And so this idea that Christ has paid for something that I can't pay back, it drives me nuts. I can't stand it. I, I really hate it. But, but it's what makes the gospel the gospel. Your sin has now been paid by the innocent man. Man, I, I'm going to tell you this week, the Lord and I, we really wrestled with this sermon because uh, I thought it was good all week. And um, the Lord was like, nah, it's really not that good. And I'm like, dude, just trust me. I know if it's good or not. So just leave it. Let me go with this, okay? And then he's like, all right, well, sure. And then like last night, yesterday, he's like, Okay, do you believe me now? It's not good. And it's like, okay, I believe you, but you could have told me earlier. Come on, just leave me hanging. I got to preach tomorrow. Um, 
it's really hard to preach about the crucifixion of Jesus. Because we all know the story. We all know how it ends. I mean, everyone at some point has heard the story of Jesus. And it, it never changes. And I think that's the beauty of it. Remember the question, what do you give to someone who's given you everything? Um, I want to tell you two final stories. One about a guy named William, and then next I'm going to tell you about a, a man named Hosea. The first guy's name is William Tyndale. Uh, the New Testament that we have, Matthew through Revelation, the, where we just heard the story of Jesus. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, you can go to the Christian bookstore or Amazon, and you can order whatever Bible you want. It could have uh, uh, coloring pencils in it. It could have space for you to journal. It could have sports references, whatever. I mean, you can find basically any kind of Bible you want. You can get it in two days through Amazon, right? And the immediacy and the convenience of it is there. So sometimes we take for granted the Bible that we have. This week celebrates the 500th, 500th, 500 years ago, uh, the Bible was translated from Greek into English. And the leader in that, his name was William Tyndale, and he made that happen for us. Possibly someone else would have done it, but we'd be celebrating them too this week. No one knows the day, but this week is 500 years. What's it cost you to get a Bible? A really expensive one? Like, I don't know, 50 bucks or something? A really inexpensive one you can find for like three or four dollars online. For William Tyndale, it cost him his life. To, to turn the Bible from Greek into English was against the, the church then. And uh, he was burned at the stake in the middle of the public square. What do you give to the person who gave you everything? William Tyndale literally gave him his give gave Christ his life. What are you giving to the Lord? What are you giving to the one who's given you everything? I want to finish by telling you a story about Hosea. It's a story you can find in the Old Testament. Uh, you can read about it yourself. Um, Hosea was one of God's men. He was, uh, sorry, he's one of, he was, we call him in the Old Testament a prophet. He's one of God's men, a holy man, people that they looked for from God's word. God came to Hosea and he said, Hosea, you've been single for a while now. And Hosea's like, yeah, I have. He's like, it's time for you to get a wife. And Hosea's like, yeah, all right, here we go. Now we're cooking. Thanks, Lord. You got my back. Where are we going to do this? We doing this on ChristianMingle.com or... Uh, Bumblebee, or whatever, <laughs> I don't know. And he's like, here's what we're going to do. I want you to go into the red light district. Hosea's like, no, you got the wrong Hosea. <laughs> Next tribe over. And he's like, no, we're going to go into the red light district. Hosea's like, yeah. He's like, you know the brothel on the corner of First and Main Street. Yeah? I don't like where this plan's going, Lord. It's like, I want you to walk in, and I want you to walk up to the front desk, and I want you to ask for Gomer. And Jose is like, what kind of name is that? And he's like, um, okay, I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you everything. So Jose does. He walks into, he comes into the red light district, and everyone looks at him because he sticks out like a sore thumb. He shouldn't be there. God's people knows he doesn't belong there, and the people know that he shouldn't belong there. And he walks into the brothel. I don't know how it works. Maybe he walks up to the reception or front desk. He says, uh, it's Gomer working. Yeah, Gomer's working. She's here. And so they call for Gomer, and she walks out, and she, she looks used. She looks tired, maybe even in pain. She keeps her eyes to the ground. She knows the routine, and so she walks back because for her, this is just another John. They make it back to the room, and she starts in on her regular routine. What do you want? How long will this take? She's usually expecting the other person to say, how much will it cost? But he asks her in a different way. How much would it cost for you to leave here with me? Ladies, do you remember what it was like for your husband to ask you to marry him? To say, will you be my wife? Can you imagine how much more special it is for Gomer to hear these words, to hear someone say, I want you, leave this place with me and be my wife forever. And so on their way out, Hosea pays the price. And they leave. They make it back to Hosea's home. Uh, He leads her out of what used to be her life and her past. They leave it all behind and they make it to their house. Now, Do you remember the transition it was to be married? Let's get used to each other's routines, each other's schedules and preferences. For Jose and Gomer, it's even more. We worship two different things. We listen to two different sets of morals. Can you imagine what it was like when it came time to be intimate with one another? The trust value doesn't exist, and they've got to build on it. Are we going to have children or not? What happens when someone comes looking for you here? I mean, the kind of conversations they have to have. After a couple months, maybe even a couple years, uh, some people say the, the trust starts to build. And Hosea leaves to do whatever God has asked him to do, whether it's work or, or whatever. But when he comes home, Gomer is not there. He walks into the kitchen only to face his nightmare. Finds a note that, I, that she's gone back. If I'm Hosea, I'm angry. I'm angry at God because this was an awful plan to begin with. What did you think was going to happen? She's a prostitute. God, never again. What did you think it's like for Gomer? She goes back and now she starts to believe that everything is true. Everything they said she would amount to. Everything she said that they would be. She never amounted to anything. And here she is back to what she, never, what she said she'd never go back to. And here she is. Just some more men. Meaningless time together. God comes back to Hosea, and he says, do it again. 
Now, I just got to be honest with y'all. This is where I'm out. To love someone deeply takes a lot. To be married takes even more. But to do that, and now to be hurt and to do it again, God, that's ridiculous. God said, I don't care. I'm asking you to do it. And Hosea goes back in. He walks up to the reception. He says, I want Gomer. And the receptionist is like, okay, this makes sense. I think the, expe- the expectation of everyone is that Hosea is going to walk in and tell Gomer exactly where she can go. And it's not to come back home with me. I knew this was happen. Would, I knew this would happen. This is all you'll ever be. The amount of hurt you caused me can never be healed. I want you to stay here because this is all you're ever worth. But everyone's shocked when Gomer walks out and he says, My wife, come back home with me. I'm here to buy you again. God ends this story with Hosea. You can read it in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea. God ends this story with Hosea saying, This is how I feel about my people. This is how I feel about Israel. This is how I feel about you. And how God feels about me. God bought me with the, with the life of Jesus. And even though I've gone back and I've gone back and I've gone back again, God says, so will I. So what? So what do we do? God bought us. And so what? Do we, just leave, do we just come and sit on Sunday morning and leave here and do nothing? No, it's not. It, this is what we do. We live as though the God of the universe died on our behalf. We live as though we have been saved. We live a life of worship, not a life of negativity. We live a life of praise, not a life of criticism. We live a life of freedom, not a life imprisoned by sin. It's time for us to start taking this story seriously, like out of the children's uh, books and into like our real life and start acting as though Jesus Christ died for us. Man, it's time for us to live a life that looks like it's been bought by grace. Let's just end it this way to say this. An innocent man died in your place. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Hey, God, we, uh, to say thank you seems, well, to say thank you is not enough. Because you've bought us time and time again, over and over and over. God, you've bought us, and thanks for taking us out of what we used to be. Forgive us for when we walk back in. God, I pray for this church, for this people, for the Restored Church congregation that we sprint after you, not walk, not jog, but we sprint. Because that's what we do for someone who's given us everything. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and the, uh, the courage. God, thank you for a community of believers that pursues you and not Christianity, but they pursue you, Christ, the life giver. Um, God help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, here.